Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to see you're here in this cold day. The wind's blowing a little bit. Uh, hopefully we get out of this winter. It doesn't seem to be as bad as last winter, so that's good. I'll try to get through today's Sunday School lesson after last night's disappointing, demeaning, degenerating loss by the Green Bay Packers to the San Francisco 49ers. There's always hope. There's always hope, right? And there's no consonance that they were the seventh seed, San Francisco first seed, blah, blah, blah. They're inside the red zone three times, came away with six points and missed a field goal, and we're still leading with two minutes to go. No consonance in that. But I will say this. After 30 years, finally, 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 the Packers have a good quarterback. It has been just waiting, waiting, waiting. You know what I'm saying? So we'll go ahead and get started. I was noticing in the um, worship this morning, one of my favorite songs, is, I don't know if I have a favorite song, but one of my favorite songs, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain, holy, holy is he. When you think about the praise and worship of, the, of those words, right? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. In other words, he had to be counted worthy to be slain. What does that mean? If you read the Old Testament, you will realize, and this verbiage is in Scripture too, I just don't have it right here with me, that without God is a righteous God. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We have no hope outside the shedding of blood. That's God's requirement for the forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament times, the, the shedding of blood was through the sacrifice of animals. The animals were brought to, you know, wherever they sacrificed the animals, and then, and then the, the blood was shed, and that was the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus being the ultimate of that, worthy is the lamb who was slain. You will notice that if you read the Old Testament, that all those animals that were brought in to be, to be sacrificed had to be unblemished, without blemish on him, on that animal. Jesus, of course, is the only human being who has ever walked this earth who is unblemished. There's no sin in him. So therefore, he is worthy to be slain. What a, what a thing to think about of someone who is perfect, God's own son, but he's the only one who is worthy to be slain. He is righteous and holy. Holy, holy is he. It's not like there's this arbitrary standard out there of holiness and righteousness and our God, the God Yahweh, just happens to match that. That's not how that is. God is righteousness. He is the definition of righteousness and holiness. It's not an arbitrary standard. He is holiness. He is righteousness. So therefore, his son is. So yes, his son is worthy to be slain. And we no longer have to depend upon the sacrifice of animals for the forgiveness of our sins. It is only through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why I've said before, as have others, 
how beautiful is the blood of Christ. Funny to think about it that way. Um, Last week, I made a a reference to uh, Randy Anderson as a baseball pitcher. He's the starter. I'm the middle reliever. And then Jim Power, who's going to finish up this spring, is the closer. So it's baseball terminology, right? I thought I overheard someone say, no, those guys are more like Larry Curley and Moe, which I don't know who that is, but, you know. So it must have been some theologians. I'm not sure. Um, One of the things that I've enjoyed in having children, we've had four of them. Brent and I had four children. One of the things I've enjoyed of having children is you get to do things you normally wouldn't do otherwise as an adult, right? So, for instance, when your three-year-old daughter, it's be, you know two hours before bedtime, and she wants to watch a movie and eat treats, something we all like to do, and some senseless movie like an animated Disney film or something like that, right? You actually enjoy it, but don't tell any other adult that, okay? Don't tell any other adult that. But you get to do those things, right? And then they grow up, those things go, grandchildren, hopefully, we'll see. One of the animated movies that came out when my kids were young was this thing called, was this movie called The Jungle Book. If you don't know what The Jungle Book is, it's about this man cub, a little boy who gets lost in the jungle, separated from other human beings, and he instead gets raised by animals in the jungle. Well, the boy's name is Mowgli, right? And he's running through the jungle, and finally he becomes friends with a bear, Blue the Bear, Bear Necessities, you know what I'm talking about. But anyway, everybody in the jungle, all the animals in the jungle, find out he's there. So uh, Shere Khan's trying to kill him, but there's other animals that want to capture Mowgli and to get things from him. So one of those groups of animals was the monkeys, if you ever seen the monkey thing, scene of the Jungle Book, it is one of the most entertaining pieces, five-minute segments you could possibly come up with. But the reason the monkeys wanted to capture Mowgli and steal him and bring him to their king, King Louie, the head monkey, was because they wanted something from him. And King Louie asked Mowgli a very specific question. Does anybody know what that question is? Anybody? Want to be like you, right? But what? There you go. Thank you. Five points for you. Man's red fire. He wants to know, what is the secret to man's red fire? And so he asked Mogi this question. Well, Mogi says, I don't know. I don't make fires, right? What I desire is man's red fire to make my dreams come true. Give me the power of man's red flower so I can be like you, right? So that was why the... Monkeys captured Mowgli so they could find out the secret of man's red fire. Notice the search for the secret here. That's the secret, right? We're searching for that secret. On our society, we search for secrets all the time. What is the secret to losing weight? Well, we can spend billions of dollars and all kinds of seminars and this program and that program and blah, 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 to figure out what the secret is to 
to losing weight or the secret to my health in general. How do I have a long life? If I could just find the fountain of youth. What is the secret to wealth? How do I become wealthy? What is the secret to happiness? What is the secret to investing? What is the secret to this and that and the thing? There's always some type of mystery out there, a hidden nugget, a mystery. It becomes a mystery. What is it that I should know, I don't know, but somebody else knows, so I want to go find that person so that they can tell me the answer to this mystery. Paul talks about a mystery. And his mystery is in first, uh, excuse me, Colossians, uh, the first chapter, starting with verse 24, if you want to go there. It's Paul's ministry to the church. And I'm going to read it once, and I'll go back through it. But he talks about the mystery. And I want to, talk, I want to discuss that. And this leads into our lesson, by the way. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations. There is the word. The mystery hidden for ages and generations. But now revealed to his saints. We're going to talk a lot about saints today. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, that's the word again, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory, him we complain, proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom that we may present ourselves mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy and, be, and he power, that he powerfully works within me. Let's just dissect this just a little bit. <laughs> First thing Paul says, and this is to the letter to, uh, in Colossians, Coloss. Now, the first thing he says, why, why don't we think about this more often? Why don't we just like become startled with this? Now I rejoice in my sufferings. <laughs> really? We went through his sufferings uh, two weeks ago, and I'll go through them again today to show you what his sufferings were. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Why does he rejoice in his sufferings? For your sake, he's talking to his readers, to the believers. For your sake, my sufferings for your sake, he talks about giving himself up as a drink offering. My sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For this, again, for the sake of his body, that is the church, the body of believers. Anybody who is born again, believes in Jesus Christ, is faithful, follower of Christ, that's who he's talking to. That's who he's serving. For the sake of his body, that is the church. He rejoices in sufferings for your sake. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. We're going to read in Ephesians how he's appointed. He was arrested on the way to Damascus, as God's chosen instrument and vessel, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me again 
for you. Emphasis. To make the word of God fully known. And here it is. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory. We're going to talk about Ephesians. Ephesians is a, cha- is a book of riches. The riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you. There's the mystery. Christ in you. We're going to talk about that a lot. Ephesians talks about being in Christ, right? There's the mystery. Jesus wasn't here before that. Now he's here, and it's Christ in you. The mystery has been revealed. The hope of glory, him we complain, proclaim, sorry, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Notice the intent that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There is the goal. The goal is to present you as a believer and me as a believer mature in Christ. Not immature, mature. And then he he talks about his effort. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. There is Paul. There is Paul right there. For this I toil. Does it sound like he has any other objective in life? I don't think so. This is his objective in life. This is why he's a chosen vessel. This is why he's a chosen instrument. That's what Paul says about his about the mystery. You'll notice, and that's why we're here today. That's why we always study the Bible, so that we become mature in Christ. You notice that we did not get to Ephesians two weeks ago like I intended. I promise you I will get to it today. Last week was an intro to Paul. Not Paul Dewan, not Paul Vandenberg, not Paul Derringe, just Paul from the Bible. So I'm asking you to have patience with me as we... Just hit on that one more time, and then we'll float into Ephesians, right? But I'm asking you to have patience, and patience is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's a virtue, right? And one of the strongest evidence we have about uh, Scripture being accurate is when the fruits of the Spirit are stated. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, Self-control, right? Patience is certainly in there. And when someone demonstrates those, as we talk about in, first, in, in Peter, where he talks about having these qualities in increasing measure, in other words, constantly growing, not static, not stagnant, how attractive that is in someone. You ever seen someone who's joyful? It's attractive. Someone who's patient? It's attractive. Somebody who's not patient, it's not attractive. Someone who's not joyful, it's not attractive. It is inherently easy to see. 
one of the greatest evidence. Let's talk a little bit about patience. My wife, Brenda, is a very, very patient person. She's extremely patient. I am not. Priscilla would agree with that. I'm not just naturally a patient person, but I have given Priscilla and Stacy and my wife, Brenda, ample opportunity to exercise their patience. You could just call me one big, fat, sanctifying machine if you wanted to look at it that way. But to just give you an idea of patience, when my dad sold his dairy farm, he kept 15 acres on the Big Jump River. The Big Jump River is a gorgeous river. Flows through kind of some woods and fields and whatever. He kept 15 acres because we had land right on it, and that's where he built his retirement home. The reason he sold the farm he was get, you know, he's getting older, plus he was diagnosed with Parkinson's early stages, so he had to sell the farm, but he kept 15 acres, built a very nice home. We loved going there, and he built it just right. So you look out the kitchen window, you could see the river curl through uh, around the bend and then come towards you through a rapids and through a deep hole right here, and the Jump River is pretty wide. I can't throw a rock across it um, in most spots. Um, it is crystal clear. It's almost like Lake Superior. If it hadn't rained, if it rains, it gets a little muddy, when it hasn't rained for like a week or two, you can stay on the bridge by our house and look down in five feet water. You can see the bottom. You can see the fish. It's just beautiful. Anyway, my dad loved to farm, can't farm anymore, loved to fish, loved to hunt, loved to sports, whatever. So now the, the farm's gone. Guess what he does? He does a lot of fishing. But he had Parkinson's. He was getting worse all the time. But somehow he would find a way to crawl down the bank by his house, go along the rocks at the edge of the stream, actually wade in the river like we used to do all the time, and if sure enough, he would fall over in about a foot of water. He'd be thrashing around like a fish out of water, screaming and yelling. My mom was so disgusted. She would get her stuff on, go down to the river, try to pull him out. It was a fiasco. Again, he would do the same thing the next day. I think he wanted to drown in that river. His dad, my grandpa, actually drowned in a river five miles upstream when he was older, when he was fishing. So I, I, I kind of wondered. My, our kids talked about that. But anyway, my dad built this house. We loved to fish. And uh, Brent and I were engaged, so we get there one time. We're there in the summertime, and my dad and I decided we're going to go down to the river, and we're going to wade downstream about three miles, and there's a gravel pit on the left-hand side. Brenda, why don't you meet us at such and such a time, because that's when we'll get to the gravel pit. You can see where this is going. And meet us there, right? Okay, no problem. So dad and I get into the river, and we wade, and we go on shore, we wade in the river, we're fishing, we're talking, we're having a great time, middle of the day, right? And Brenda, at the appointed time, dutifully gets in the car, goes down the gravel pit, drives in, nobody's there. No dad, no, no Jeff, no Jim. So she waits. And waits. And waits some more. I don't know the exact timeline, I know it was over an hour. I think it was closing in on two hours. We were engaged. We weren't married yet. So it gets worse. As Dad and I come around the ed edge, ed edge of the stream where Brenda can now see us for the very first time, it's about a third of the mile away up, she sees us. Oh, yeah. Well, she was happy for that because we weren't dead and floating through this, down the stream. <clears throat> Excuse me. But... The worst thing is, when we become in sight with Brenda, and I can see her and she can see me, those two fishermen, Jim and Jeff, had no sense of urgency to hasten the process. 
and get and get down to the car where Brenna's at where she's already been waiting a long time. So we fish, we keep fishing and gradually work our way down. It was probably another 40 minutes. Not a bright day in my life as far as, you know, uh, being a future husband, but it just kind of demonstrates uh, Brenda's patience. She's an extremely patient person. Um, we're going to recap here. We're going to talk about patience today, specifically with Paul. That's why I want to... Re- we're going to recap today... Who is Paul? It is extremely important to know who Paul is to understand the epistles. And we're going to find out just a little bit more today. So who is Paul? He's from Tarsus. He's a Hebrew. He's an Israelite. He's trained as a Pharisee. He's probably on the all-star Pharisee team, probably the captain of the team. When he was arrested by Jesus on the way to Damascus, he does a complete 180. A complete 180. So, just to kind of give you an idea, this is what the Lord says to Ananias, who's going to lay his hands on Paul and take the scales off his eyes so he can receive vision again. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is each. Remember, Ananias objected. I don't want to go see this guy, Saul. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We will get to that suffering part again, but right now we're going to talk about him being a chosen instrument. Why was Paul the chosen instrument? He was the anti-Christian ringleader, right? Why was he the chosen instrument? Well, Paul gets into that. He tells us exactly why, and it has to do with his patience. So this it was not something I just made up on my own. This is what Paul has to say in 1 Timothy. And this is just vital. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. And this is what Paul says to Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Isn't that us all? And the grace of our Lord overflowed with, with, for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And this is, where, this is where Paul gets into the reasoning of why he would be the chosen instrument. Okay? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is true. And then he has this statement that is striking when you read it. Of whom I am the foremost. What does foremost mean? There's a Greek word, Greek word protos, P-R-O-T-O-S, protos, first or foremost, of which I am the foremost. In other words, it could be translated as I'm the worst. I'm the number one sinner. Okay? The saying is trustworthy to say in full acceptance that Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
And then now the reasoning goes even further. <laughs> but I receive mercy for this reason, okay? That in me, as the foremost, again, translate the worst. Now, since then, we've had Hitler, we've had Stalin, you know, we've had some pretty bad people, right? But this is what he's saying Jesus Christ might display his perfect, what? Patience. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. An example. Paul's sin, and we'll go through them, and his, and his repentance and acceptance, and not only that, becomes the chosen vessel, is an example of, of Jesus Christ's perfect patience. My wife has a lot of patience. It's not perfect. I am, nobody here has perfect patience. And the perfect patience of Jesus Christ as an example for us. To those who are to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. That's the reason right there that he is God's chosen instrument, God's chosen vessel. The irony of him being the lead persecutor of Christians, the born-again Christians, the people of the followers of Christ, and he is the lead, lead persecutor of them, right? I receive mercy, again, for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Again, patience is one of the fruits of the Spirit. The Word of God is planted out of that plant, planting comes fruit. Like I plant stuff in my garden or apple trees or whatever. Out comes fruit. What is the fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Patience is in there. Jesus Christ dis- displays all of these fruits of the Spirit perfectly, patience being one of them. His perfect patience. That is just so striking. I received mercy for this reason, that me as the foremost, Jesus Christ, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Again, for you, the body of believers, to observe, to see, to look at, and say, wow. That is the reason that he is the chosen vessel. Well, how bad a sinner was Paul? Again, he says he's first, the foremost, on what scale? Well, he's a blasphemer, that's for sure. He spoke demeaning lies about Jesus. You ever had lies spoken about you and then spread around? I'm not playing victim status. There's no way I'm going to play victim status. But I will say this. If you were a teacher in a small town you coach basketball, trust me, your name will get drugged to the mud. That is just part of the system. They just should have a class on that in college. Said, so you want to be a basketball coach and a fifth grade teacher? Here's what's going to happen to you. The whole town's going to create a bunch of lies about you and spread them around town. Now, again, that just happens in every town, not just any, you know, one specific place. That's just kind of part of being a teacher. Kids go home and they lie, believe it or not. Might even be some of your kids, who knows? But they, they make up stuff, and then what happens is that parent talks to that parent and then that parent, and pretty soon, like this. And then the principal says, do you know the teacher? Ugh. 
Anyway, he's a blasphemer, and he speaks lies about Jesus. Okay? His words were directed people away from the truth about Jesus, as is our public discourse does today. Media, entertainment, education, doesn't matter what it is. Our public discourse today draws you away as much as possible. Oh, you're interested in Jesus? Here, let's look over here instead. Let's refocus your eyes. No, don't. Here, let's cover that up. We don't need to talk about that. We're going to talk about this over here. His words treated Jesus as a pretender, in effect, a liar. Now, this is what the author, this book we're going through, says about that particular sin. The seriousness of the sin rises, get this, with the dignity of the person you are demeaning. I'll say it one more time. The seriousness of that sin, a scale of 1 to 10, this will be a 10, rises with the dignity of the person you are demeaning, in this case, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's who Paul is a blasphemer about. Okay, he didn't stop there. He was a blasphemer. He's a persecutor. He went way beyond his words, okay? He's mounting things up here, right? So he's making the case that he's the worst sinner out there, right? So let's just kind of look here. Um, Acts 9, conversion of Saul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, that if, he, that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he's an equal persecutor, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That was his, that was his goal. Okay, And he expounds on that, on his own verbiage. He talks about this. And I'll, I'll tell you where he does that. He does a really good job at this in, in, in Galatians, okay? In Galatians, he's talking about this particular subject. Chapter 1, verse 13, or we'll start at verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. He emphasizes that several times in Scripture. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ, directly from the source. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism Judaism beyond many my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I, for the traditions of my fathers. He is a Pharisee on steroids. King Pharisee, big badge, number one. Big check mark by Paul. He was zealous for the tradition of my fathers. And if you know the tradition of the fathers, that is rejecting the prophets of God instead sticking to legalism. But when he had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, we'll talk about grace today, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So there's Paul basically saying how big a persecutor he was. In other words, in other words when it comes to 
imprisoning, persecuting efforts, he was unsurpassed. No one could beat him. Number one. Last one. Insolent opponent. The Greek word hybriston. From that, we could get the word in the English form of hubris. You don't know what that is. Arrogance, haughtiness, pride. Acts 9, 4 to 5, Saul, Saul, that's his Hebrew name, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. This put all of Paul's blasphemy, all his persecution, all his arrogance in a new light. He was persecuting the risen Savior, the Son of God. He was sinning against, and here it is, all his Bible knowledge. He had a great amount of Bible knowledge. He was a Pharisee. He studied it. He was sinning against all of that. And he was also sinning against the evidence in Jesus' life. I talked about this last week, or two weeks ago. I say, did Paul ever meet Jesus? Did he ever meet him? Well, he certainly knew about him because he's persecuting his followers, number one. So he had to know something about it, right? He had to know about Jesus' activities. He couldn't, he, I don't see how you could, couldn't. And he's sinning against that. So not only his Bible knowledge, but also the great evidence in Jesus' life. So therefore, he pronounces himself as the foremost, the first, the worst. I'm the number one sinner. Basically, and back in Timothy, Jesus said, you are the least deserving of my mercy. And there's the example for all of us. Paul, you are the least deserving of my mercy, but we're going to make you number one on the other team. Probably the most influential writer. He wrote half the New Testament, 13 of the 27 chapter, uh, books of the New Testament. Wrote more of the book than anybody, of, of Scripture than anybody else. Read by thousands of years of generations. The foremost, the first, the worst. Uh, the worst of the worst. And God makes him the most influential writer, probably known to man. What about this suffering thing? We're going to go back to his suffering, and then we'll get into what we're going to talk about today. We talked about this two weeks ago. Let's look at it one more time. Paul uh, talks quite a bit about this. like a resume almost for his endurance starting in Second Corinthians chapter 11 verse 21 or so whatever anyone else dares to boast of I'm speaking as a fool I also dare to boast of that are the Hebrews so am I are the Israelites so am I are they the offspring of Abraham so am I Check for check for check for check. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. We think we have problems. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, Dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, 
danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship. There's his mention of toil again. Through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food. In cold and exposure. And then he hits this point, which I emphasized two weeks ago, which I think is the most striking, striking, striking piece of this. That despite all of that, despite all of that, right? Here he states why, right? In a part from other things, this is a separated issue. There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, of which, you know, he talks about toiling for the churches. There is the daily pressure on me, daily, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? And am I not indignant? If I must boast, I boast with things about that show my weakness, that God and Father of the Lord Jesus he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. That is major league suffering on steroids. That is major league suffer- suffering. And last two weeks ago, I mentioned, I said, and that's not even talking about the thorn in his flesh, which is the next piece. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether in body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I know this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which, many, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. I don't know if he's talking about himself. I'm assuming he is. Maybe he's not. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses, though I, I should wish to boast. I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees or hears from me. Okay, And then he talks about not becoming conceited, which is extremely tempting for all of us to do. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, because of that, a thorn, remember all the, remember all the, Sufferings he had before that, as if that's not enough. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Doesn't say what it is. To keep me from becoming conceited. Oftentimes, pride cometh before a fall, right? Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content, content, 
with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. That sounds contenting, doesn't it? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is demonstrating to us the perseverance of the saints and his witness. Last thing before we get into Ephesians. Excuse me. So, about this suffering thing. We've all have sufferers suffer various things, sickness, finances, physical, relationships. You and I both know that if we were to take a pen and paper and a piece of paper and draw out my perfect life, maybe you girls here, remember when you were in seventh grade, you grew on a piece of paper who you're going to marry, what house you're going to live in, what kids you're going to have, all that type of jazz, like the perfect life. You know exactly what I'm talking about. The boys paid no attention to that, but the girls did. If you were to draw out your perfect life, it wouldn't have these sufferings in it. So here's the key question. Do you want sufferings or do you want sanctification? Pick one. James, the actual brother of Jesus, says this. A servant of God and of Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Just like Paul said, seems to be a theme here. Count it all joy. All? All? Count it all. All? Joys? Joy, my brothers? When you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Who's seen Kelvin Hobbes? The cartoon, Kelvin and Hobbes. When the dad says to Kelvin, Kelvin, go do something you hate. It builds character. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you receive uh, trials of various kinds. For you know, for you know that the testing of your faith has a fruit here. Produces steadfastness or resolve. That would be another uh, verbiage to use here. Steadfastness. And let steadfastness, once you have it, have its full effect that you may be, again, here's that word, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's the, there's, there's the reason that you have trials. There's the reason that you have persecution. There's the reason all this. For you know that the test in your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Paul did that on steroids. My goodness. Look at his persecution. And yet he had complete resolve. Never wavered an ounce about his resolution and his goal in in his life. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's a reference to the riches that we're going to study here in Ephesians. Okay, let's go to Ephesians, chapter 1. We're going to read, oh, I don't know, first 1 through 14 or something like that. Talk a little bit about it with emphasis on uh, 1 through 3, because that's what for today. Now, when Paul writes this, he's in prison in Rome. Who has the mindset while you're in prison to write stuff like this? 
Okay, we'll start out the beginning here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, this is Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Notice he says the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's going to talk about blessings. Here's the blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with, with, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. I wonder if we turn his writings into a sixth grade uh, English teacher, how many red marks you get for grammar. In him we have redemption through his blood. Again, this talk about his blood we talked about before. The forgiveness of our trespasses, which he was many, according to the riches of his grace, Ephesians to me about riches, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery, ta-da, of his will, according to his purpose, with which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, again, richness, having been predestined, there's that word again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that you who were the first in ho- to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, you, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. There you go. There's the first 14 verses, right? And we're going to uh, emphasize here um, about the first three. So, Paul, so our author, who is uh, the book we're studying right here, Be Rich, Warren Worsby, has a few comments on this. And we'll just kind of go through this a little bit. He talks about saints. But we're going to talk a little bit about richness, earthly richness, and spiritual or heavenly richness, okay? Now, here's an example that our author comes up with right here, and you might find this interesting. Here's his opening comments. This is the author. She had gone down in history as America's greatest miser, yet when she died in 1916, Hetty, H-E-T-T-Y, first name, last name Green, G-R-E-E-N, Hetty Green, left an estate valued at over $100 million. She ate cold oatmeal because it cost to heat it. Her son had to suffer a leg amputation because she delayed so long in looking for a free clinic that, it was, that his case became incurable. She was wealthy, yet she chose to live like a pauper. Eccentric, certainly. Crazy, perhaps, but nobody could prove it. She was so foolish that she hastened her own death by bringing on an attack of apoplexy while arguing about the value of drinking skim milk. But Hetty Green is an illustration of Christian believers have limitless wealth at your disposal and yet live like paupers. This is the author's comment on Ephesians. It was a kind of Christian that Paul wrote to the epistle in the Ephesians. 
Some names in history were identified immediately, and Paul is one of them. His name was originally Saul, and since he was from the tribe of Benjamin, it's likely he was named after the king Israel. Unlike his namesake, however, Saul of Tarsus was obedient and faithfully served God. As a devoted rabbi, Saul became the leader of the anti-Christian movement in Jerusalem. But in the midst of his activity, Saul was arrested by Jesus Christ and was converted. Saul of Tarsus became Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. While he was ministering to the church of Antioch, he was called by the Spirit to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and he obeyed. The book of Acts records three missionary journeys that Paul took throughout the Roman Empire in one of the greatest evangelistic endeavors in church history. About the year 53, Paul first ministered in Ephesus but did not remain there. That's in Acts. Two years later, while on his third journey, Paul stayed in Ephesus for at least two years and saw the whole whole vast area evangelized. During these years, he founded a strong church in the city that was dedicated to the worship of the goddess Diana. For a description of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, read Acts 20. And for an explanation of the opposition, read Acts 19. It was nearly 10 years later when Paul wrote to his beloved friends in Ephesus. Paul was a prisoner in Rome, and he wanted to share these believer, with these believers the great truths the Lord had taught him about Christ and the church. Um, compare Ephesians with Colossians and Philemon, Philemon to get a better understanding of the historical background. So here's the historical background. Onesimus, a slave, ran away from Philemon, his, past, his master who lived at Colossus. While in Rome, Onesimus met Paul and was converted. Tychius, which is one of the pastors of the church of Colossus, which may have met in Philemon's house, was in Rome to discuss some problems with Paul. So Paul took advantage of the presence of these two men to send three letters to his friends. The epistle to the Ephesians, the epistle to the Colossians, and the epistle to Philemon. At the same time, he sent Onesimus back to his master. So the letter was written from Rome around A.D. 62. Though Paul was on trial for his life, he was concerned about the spiritual needs of the churches he had founded. As an apostle, apostle, one sent with commission, he had an obligation to teach them the word of God and to seek them up in the faith. So Paul is on trial for his life and probably knows, in fact, he hints at it, what his outcome is going to be for his trial. He's going to be executed. But yet that's not his concern. He's talking about the spiritual growth of the places, of the believers of the places he's been. So, so, so who, are the, who is the assembly? Who is he writing to? He's writing to the believers and the saints, so-called saints, right? He's addressing them as saints. Now, when we think of the word saints... We think of somebody who's no longer alive but dead. Okay? That's what we think about when we think about saints. Okay? Um, a saint, a saint was a person who was officially recognized for holiness of life. Well, how did this happen? Who makes that distinction? Some religious body. And so after a person dies, they carefully study their life to see if they qualify for being a saint. Plus, they had to be responsible for two miracles. Okay? Now, when I think of the word saint, I think of my mother. My mother, Ruth, it is, it is said in our family, my kids, 
St. Ruth. My, name's, my mom's name was Ruth. Ruth, Grace, Overhagen. Erase Overhagen when she got married to Jim. Ruth, Ruth Grace, Birch. She is the most godly woman I knew. She's the most godly person I knew. I had great parents. I had awesome parents. Just fantastic parents. Weren't perfect. But I think my mom got as, well, as close to that as any human being could possibly get. I remember reading in the, in the book, uh, The Band of Brothers, which is on World War II. Um, it talks about this one particular soldier. He was as good and experienced as a soldier as you could possibly get and still be alive. Well, my mom was alive, and she was a, certainly a saint. To give you an idea of how this works, my dad, if you took a statistical bell curve like this, right, you have extremes on both ends. My dad was over here. My mom was over here. My dad was competitive. He had a soft spot to him, but he was competitive. He liked to win. He liked, you know, all this stuff. I'll give you an example. We're sitting at the, kitchen, at the dining room table. So we have the kitchen, the dining room area, which was a square room, and the living room. There's no wall between it, but there's carpet out there. And my brother Bob and I are playing with Dad cards, a simple game of 21 or what they call blackjack. Well, this is how important it is for Dad to win. He finally slaps that last card down, wins, and he jumps up like this and bellers and pumps his fist in the air. This is beating his two kids, right? And hits the chandeliers above the table. Crash. They came down, and there is shattered glass in every direction. There's the loudest crash. I mean, it's just like... And my brother Bob and I, who have a little bit of red twitch fiber in our muscles, reacted quickly and boom, went out to the uh, living room on the carpet and dove and we escaped without getting hurt. That was my dad over a glass, over a game. Okay? Let's go to Ruth. Ten people at the table, in-laws, outlaws, whatever, and we're playing spoons. If you ever played spoons before, you put ten, you, if you have ten people, you put nine spoons in the middle you hand cards around like this. When someone gets four of a kind, they grab a spoon. Well, when someone grabs a spoon, everybody grabs a spoon. There's a mad dash, there's yelling, there's screaming, there's whatever. And then you have one loser every time, the person who did not get a spoon. Um, so, and my dad would, he'd be getting four of a kind, he'd be like this, and he'd slam a card down when he, and just, everybody's, his nerves just like this, right? But sometimes he would very carefully sneak a spoon out like this, and no one noticed, and someone said, hey, there's eight spoons. Well, then it becomes a mad dash, right? Well, one time there was this me- melee, spoons flying everywhere, and my mom goes to reach out and grab that spoon, and out of the corner of her eye, she sees Pauline, my sister-in-law's hands going towards it, and she goes like this. That's Ruth. Small, small example, but she, in her lifetime, never, ever put herself in front of somebody else, not once. Not once that I saw. She was very much a saint. It was very revealing as to what was inside her heart. It was very evident to her children what she was about. She was a saint because when I think about Jesus Christ walking to the cross, knowing fully what was ahead of him, and he had no self-interest whatsoever. He knew what was ahead of him. Physically, the torture, the execution, everything that was in front of him, and he dutifully walked straight towards the cross, heading towards Jerusalem, right? No self-interest whatsoever. My mom, I'm sure she had self-interest someplace. She probably hid it. I'm not sure where. 
But that's, that's, just, that's just the way she was. She's very selfless, right? So she's a saint. We're talking about saints here. The criteria is, oh, and you had to have two miracles, right? So I'll say my mom's miracles were five. Mary Jo, Scott, Chris, Bob, and myself. There's, there's the miracles of Ruth. Nine times Paul addresses his readers as saints in the Ephesians. These saints are alive, not dead. But he addresses them as saints, so this is obviously a different definition, right? They were dead in their sins, but not now. So here's the definition that we would come up with as some of the saints in Ephesians. One who has trusted Jesus as a Savior. That is the saints that he's addressing. Alive physically and alive spiritually. Three terms that are used in Ephesians is disciples, or throughout the New Testament. Disciples, people of the way, and saints as describing the followers of Jesus. Saint is also uh, means basically set apart, okay? Related to the word sanctified. Talked about being sanctified. The word saint means one who has been set apart is related to the word sanctified, which means set apart. When a sinner trusts Christ as a Savior, he is taken out of the world and placed in Christ. Believer is in the world physically, but not in the world spiritually. Like a scuba diver, he exists in an alien environment because he possesses special equipment, in this case, the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Every true believer possesses the Holy Spirit. And it is through the Spirit's power that the Christian is able to function in this world. How do they become saints? The people he's addressing, how do they become saints? Two words, faithful, they're believers in Jesus Christ, so therefore labeled as faithful. And then grace. Grace is mentioned 12 times in Ephesians. And basically grace is the kindness of God towards undeserving people. Grace and faith go together. And that's probably the best way to describe this is in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, this is such a hard-hitting concept. This is just like a pow. Who's ever seen the show Batman? Remember Batman and Robin? And sure enough, they get in the room with the Joker or the Penguin or the Cat Lady, and they're fighting their people. And every time Batman's fist connects with the guy's face, what happens on the screen? It says pow. We should have that up here. When we get a hard-hitting concept like we're going to study right here, pow, bam, boom. So here's the pow for today. Chapter 2, Ephesians, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which with, he, which, with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. There's the richness. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Remember we talked about two words, faithful 
believers in Christ, grace, the kindness of God towards undeserving people. And that is not your own doing. He is just very adamant about this. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have no room to boast. We have no room to boast because it is grace towards an undeserving people that has saved us. Lastly, what is the source of our blessings? Um, So we talked about kind of the assembly, the scope. What is the source of our blessings? Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father has made us rich, and when we were born again to God's family, you were born rich. Paul Getty, one of the richest men in the world, was worth an estimated $1.3 billion. The weekly income of some of the oil sheiks runs into the millions, yet all of us wealth is but pennies when compared to the spiritual wealth we have in Christ Jesus. In this letter, Paul explained to us that these riches are how we are to draw from our Christian living. Well, what do we look for as a source of our happiness, our contentment, our satisfaction, our reward. We have this, unfortunately, this constantly rearranging process of our lives to make ourselves more comfortable. We constantly do that. Everything we do, a lot of things we do, most things we do, is to make ourselves more comfortable. In the Old Testament, God promised his earthly people material blessings for obedience, and that's in Deuteronomy 28, chapters, uh, chapter 28, 1 through 13. We don't have time to go through that. Um, Philippians 4.19, last one. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God and Father be forever and ever. The Holy Spirit is mentioned many times in this letter. The Holy Spirit channels our riches from us to us from the Father. It is a rich, rich experience. Our citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. The believer operates in two spheres, earth and in heaven. The heavenly sphere provides the power and direction um, for our earthly walk. I'll finish because of lack of time with one last reading here on page uh, 25 of my book, which is the book that were kind of the guide for me here. I'll finish with this. The fact that Paul is writing about wealth would be significant to his readers. Again, this is talking about the richness here because Ephesus was considered the bank of Asia. One of the seven wonders of the world, the great temple of Diana, was in Ephesus, and it was not only a center for idolatrous worship, but also a depository for wealth. Some of the greatest art treasures of the ancient world were housed in this magnificent building. In this letter, Paul will compare the church of Jesus Christ to a temple and will explain the great wealth that Christ has in his church. Paul has already used the word riches, but you may want to check out other financial words such as inheritance or fullness. 
Paul is saying to us to be rich. I'll close this in prayer. We're over time. We'll uh, f- follow up next week.